There we go. I was worried I was going to have to do a timekeeping dance. Um, Let's say this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. (laughs) All is forgiven. So we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. To unpack this a bit, we're going to dive into a passage from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. And it's written to a church who are wrestling with the weight of this new thing that's happened to them. They're individuals who've heard the gospel, who've responded to what Jesus has done for them. And they're being gathered together into this weird community that we call the church. And they're wrestling with that. So we're going to read a passage written to them. If you want to grab your Bible... Or grab your phone, or I would say it'll come up on screen, but I'm not sure. So maybe you just want to follow along with me. But I'm going to read this now. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19, says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I'll level with you as we dig into this topic tonight. This is the part of the creed that gets stuck in my throat the most. And it's also the part of the creed that's most likely to lead to a surrendering moment between me and the Lord where I recommit myself and say, yes, Lord, I do. I do believe in your church. And you might be thinking, what? You work for the church, mate. And that is true. But the church can be hard to believe in, can't it? I believe in God the Father. Absolutely, I believe that God made me, that he has a plan for me, that he created a good and perfect world and longs for the restoration of all things. Amen. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. Absolutely. Jesus' sacrifice for me changed everything for me. Jesus brought me hope, freedom, identity, healing. His love completely transformed my life. I believe in Christ the Son. 
Now, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, I believe in the Holy Spirit. God's life-giving spirit that guides me day by day, making Jesus and his kingdom more real to me and shaping me more and more into the image of Jesus, more and more into the man that God made me to be. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The church, though, really, Lord, you had all this time to come up with a plan, and this is what you came up with restoring the whole of creation with this absolute mess. Because the church is a mess, right? I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. Whether it's church leaders falling from grace or division on division and infighting, whether it's the fact that the church in our nation at least represents a far more affluent and far less diverse group of people than the general population. Whether it's that constant urge to distance ourselves from those Christians over there who are saying that thing or that way of being church. Or whether it's just some very shady and very ugly history in the church at times. The church is a mess. So what is the hope? What is this church that we've just proclaimed our belief in? We believe in the church. What is that? The passage read... Do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Meeting together is the church. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's the people gathering together. That's what the writer here is saying. And what is that gathering? What is this thing we call church? The word used throughout the New Testament, in fact, it's used over 110 times by multiple writers throughout the New Testament to describe this gathering of Christians coming together is the Greek word ecclesia. And the interesting thing is, the early church didn't choose to use the word synagogue, which was where the Jews worshipped, even though most of the early converts had come to faith in Jesus through their Jewish faith and culture and identity. They didn't use that word. They also didn't choose to use the word temple, which was where the Romans would go to worship. As like a countercultural version of that, they didn't use that either. They used this word ecclesia. And essentially what this word means, the closest you can get to kind of the meaning of this word, is like a town council meeting. An assembly, a gathering, usually with some kind of administrative function. Thrilling, right? Thrilling. Does that not fill you with joy and excitement? A town council meeting, buzzing for town council meeting this week. They got the best coffee, you know, man. It doesn't sound particularly exciting, does it? It's not the best PR I've ever heard. Can you imagine the early church gathered around? Look, we've got this thing. Each one of us has encountered Jesus, been completely transformed by him. He's changed everything for us. And he has this mission to transform the whole world, to bring grace and truth and life and recreate all things. He's got this mission for the whole world. It's going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the ends of the earth. And we're going to gather together to encourage one another, to build each other up as we grow across the world. I love it. Yeah, mate, what should we call it? Let's call it a town council meeting. It's also a terrible invite, isn't it? Can you imagine trying to invite your mate to that? Um, Rubbish word. So why is this word used? Why are they calling this gathering of Christians a town council meeting? Well, in context, Roman town councils would gather together under the rule and authority of Rome 
to exercise the will of the Roman Empire in that region. So when Paul and the other New Testament writers are using this word for what we do when we gather, they're saying that we are a kingdom administration here for the city of Bristol. When we gather to celebrate what God's been doing, to worship, to pray, to break bread together, to unpack the scriptures, we do so as representatives of the kingdom of God for this city, in and under the authority of Jesus. We gather to establish the kingdom of God in the city of Bristol in the name of Jesus. To establish the kingdom of God in the city of Bristol in the name of Jesus. This is a deeply subversive gathering, subverting the darkness of the world with the light of God's kingdom as it breaks through in this place. A colony of heaven sat in the heart of Bristol. I'm a bit of a history nerd, as I'm sure I've confessed to you many times before, and even that extends to being a church history nerd, which I know is even drier. But um, I really loved getting an opportunity to study it when I was training, and I find it fascinating. And one of the texts of the early church, which I find really amazing and fascinating, is called the Didascalia. Uh, and what this book is, it's essentially an instruction manual on how to run a church written by the early church in the third century. You know, if you don't know what you're doing in your job, maybe you feel like me, go back and find a third century text on what you're supposed to be doing and go from there. Um, so basically, it's been 170 years since Jesus has returned to the Father. The church is growing massively. And so the church does that classic church thing. And they're like, we should write some rules down or like some guidelines or something. And that is basically what you've got. And in this one section, it talks about the two jobs you need for a church gathering, a church meeting like we're having now. There's one, you need a pastor up the front to teach the people. And two, you need a deacon at the back by the door. And I assume people brought their own coffee. And the deacon's job title is essentially like being the bouncer at the back of the door, like making sure nothing bad happens to disturb the meeting. And recorded in this document is what the deacon is supposed to do if someone comes in late to church, which I know none of you would do. But it says, if someone comes in once the speaker has already started talking and that person is wealthy then they should be told to stand at the back to avoid disturbing anyone else. But if the latecomer is poor, then the deacon is to escort them to a seat of honor at the front of the room. And if the deacon isn't paying attention and misses the poor newcomer, then the speaker who has full view of the room should stop what they're doing, stop what they're saying, get down, and go to personally greet the newcomer and escort them to a seat of honor. And if no seat is available, then they should give them their own before they carry on with the teaching. Because when someone comes in the church, who out there would be considered last, in here they are considered first. What we do here, what we are here, is not a social club or an interest group, a gathering of like-minded people. When we gather together as one body, one family, we subvert the broken natural order of this world. We wave the flag of the kingdom of God and proclaim that what you see out there is not the way it's supposed to be and that God has something to say about that. When we gather as a church, we pile fuel onto God's signal fire of hope. 
What we are here is deeply subversive of the broken beliefs of the world. And this family, this body, this gathering, this town council meeting is where the kingdom of God hits the road running. A colony of heaven sat in the heart of Bristol. This is the church we speak of when we proclaim we believe in the church. That is the call. To gather together to encourage one another, as our pastor said. To encourage one another into the life of the kingdom of God. To encourage one another to be in the city for the city. So that's my first challenge, and it's a big one. Are you all in for this new society? For this town council? For this colony of heaven in the heart of Bristol? If you're committed to be here, then be here. Move your diary around to be here. Cut your weekends away short so you're back in time to be here. Make it a priority. We're called to gather together to encourage one another by being together. So let's be together. Hannah and I had a vicar a few years back who used to say to the congregation, um, as a vicar, I get five Sundays off a year, and I'd encourage you to do the same. He said, it's important for my spiritual health and my well-being. That's why that rule exists. It's not healthy for me to be away from my church family for more than five Sundays a year. So I'd encourage you to do the same. Just going to let that one hang there. We believe in the church, a subversive community, a signal fire for the kingdom of God. We believe in the church. The next bit was, we believe in the Catholic church. What is that about? Well, it's not talking about Roman Catholic. This wording predated any kind of denominational rifts in the church. So it doesn't mean Roman Catholic. In this context, it means I believe in the general, the universal, the one church. That the church is one. And this is one of the reasons the church is so subversive, because it is one. Our passage read, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The church stands on the hope we profess and the person of Jesus. Not on different hopes and different saviors, we are united in the one where we put our hope. It's Jesus' church. And we're held together in him. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's described as his body. We are united together in the body of Christ. Don't you just love that? Church is at its best when you're stood talking to someone that you don't really like and have nothing in common with. Someone who in ordinary life you would never speak to. But because you've been brought together and united because of your relationship with Jesus, because of what he has done for you. That is what Catholic means. We talked about this a while ago when we were talking about what it means to come to Jesus' table for communion. We are united by our need of Jesus. Each one of us, whatever our story, whatever our bank balance, we all need the grace, the forgiveness, and the love of Jesus. And each one of us, if we know him, are united in having received completely undeservedly that love, that grace, that forgiveness, and that freedom. 
We have been forged together into the family of God. We are part of the one church. Have you ever noticed that it's only really us lot who like to bring in all these divisions in the church? Jesus' last prayer on earth before he ascended to the Father was for his church to be unified. So I don't think he sat there thinking, oh, you know what, it's all looking a bit samey. Everyone's getting along a bit too well. Let's time for another rift. Let's like get them arguing about whether they should use an organ or a keyboard and see what happens. I don't think Jesus is doing that. And the enemy doesn't seem to differentiate either. Have you ever noticed that? He wants to destroy all Christians. When Christians are being executed around the globe, they're not being asked what denomination they're in. They're being asked if they follow Jesus or not. So it's only really us who like to put all these differentiations around style and belief and chop the church up a bit. That's why it's so powerful when we proclaim that we are part of the one universal Catholic church. And the other beautiful thing about that is that Jesus' one church is universally open to all. Free to all, for all, open to all, and everyone has their part to play. If you're wondering if you belong here, it's a fact that you do. Jesus only has one church. You belong in it by nature of your relationship with him. And you bring something to the church that we would be completely lacking without you. So that's my next question to ask yourself this evening. Who do you see as your church? Is it your mates from church who are similar to you? Is it those people in your demographic at church? Your small group? Is it churches that look like ours? Is it the new person? The lonely person? The stranger? Who do you speak with? Who do you do church with? Maybe God is inviting us all this evening to increase our vision of what the church is as we declare that we believe in the Catholic Church. So breaking it down, we believe in the church. We believe in the Catholic Church. But we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We've already talked about what a mess the church often is. So how are we proclaiming it to be holy? One of Hannah and I's favorite stories from a, a church that we met in was one Sunday morning when uh, it was like, the, like our 10.30 service, like family service was about to start. The countdown was probably on. And uh, there were two guys just absolutely beating the daylights out of each other in the car park. They were rolling around on the ground. Yeah, they had a car park, right? Imagine that, a church with a car park. What a time to be alive. And in the car park, these guys were just absolutely pounding on each other. They were rolling around on the foot, hitting, kicking. One of them bit the other one. Uh, meanwhile, the, some of the staff were out like directing all the like families with their toddlers like around this big scrap that was developing in the middle of the car park. Eventually, a bunch of guys like dragged them off each other, and it turned out that the whole fight had originated because of this. The one guy didn't perceive that the other guy was taking the grace of Jesus seriously enough. Love that. Love that. Chaotic. 
Jesus is in there, but it's very chaotic. And, you know, that's no new thing. St. Nicholas, that this church is named after. If you probably immediately think Christmas, right? Yeah, Christmas. Absolute legend, St. Nicholas. I mean, in real life, way cooler than he's been made out through history. He, um, the gift-giving thing was because he was giving out money as dowries that meant that women would be freed from being forced into a life of prostitution if they didn't have one. I mean, that is incredible. Absolute legend. But one of my other favorite stories about St. Nicholas is that he was at this big council with all these church leaders where they're essentially, they're deciding on the creed again. It's a slightly different creed to this one. It's a bit longer because they added a few more amendments and all that kind of thing. Very churchy, classic. But all the big dogs of the early church world have all gathered in this room to debate the theology of the church, what we believe. And this guy called Arius, he stood up and he's talking about how Jesus isn't the same as God. He's not equal to the Father. He was made by the Father. You know, which is a huge deal because that means that, you know, what can his sacrifice actually atone for if it isn't God himself but someone God sent? You know, that's a huge deal. And so Father Christmas stands up and just lays him out. Just lays him out stone cold in the middle of the thing. You know, it's chaotic. (laughs) The church is messy and chaotic. But Jesus is in there somewhere. The church has always been broken. Because the church is full of broken people like me and like you. But the church has always been beautiful. Because Jesus is in it, bringing beauty out of ashes. Transforming brokenness into beauty one person at a time. The church has always been broken, but it has always been beautiful. Choosing a bunch of broken, messy people to be what the Bible describes as the bride of Christ, the hope of the world, sounds totally and utterly ridiculous, right? And not even possible. But doesn't that just seem like the exact sort of thing that Jesus would do? The God who humbles himself into the mess to bring restoration. The God who calls us deeper and deeper all the time into new life, into transformation, into new freedom, into new peace, into new joy as we become more like him and grow in holiness. I love, some of you may know, the Church of England is currently going through a big kind of debate around a big issue uh, relating to human sexuality and marriage. And the... um, it's, it's deep felt on all sides. It's been, it's been a big debate, a big discussion. It's been leading up to it for a long time. It's like deeply felt on every side. And um, our bishop sent us uh, an email last week to all the clergy in the diocese just talking about how, how we go forward as a church in diversity, diversity of opinion, diversity of all these things. And in light of this debate, And she said this, and I thought it was so beautiful. Differences of view about the deepest matters of faith and teaching and practice are not new. It was part of the Christian church's DNA from the very beginning. As those from different cultures, different nations, different spiritual experiences and psychological preferences were drawn into the life of the body of Christ. The Christ who is wounded yet glorious and whose body is wounded yet glorious. 
the Jesus who dived into the mess to bring restoration, chooses a messy, broken, chaotic people, and by his love, he forms them into a community and draws them into restoration, both for themselves and for the world around them, in his mission to restore all things. I believe in that church. Our passage said, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We're called to spur one another on into becoming that holy church. Into inviting Jesus into our work, our bedroom, our speech, our finances, our browser history. To challenge and champion one another into becoming more like Jesus. Let's spur one another on in becoming more, more and more like his church. Because he is here working in our midst to bring beauty from ashes. We are not there yet. We are called daily to move in the direction of becoming more like him. So that the world might know his healing and his freedom through us. Ephesians 5.25 says this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We proclaim the church holy not because it is, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And we proclaim, as we proclaim it as truth, we also vow it as a prayer that the church would be holy. As we proclaim that the church is holy, we vow it as a prayer that the church would be holy. We believe in the church. We believe in the Catholic church. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Should we pray? Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for all that you are, all that you have done for each one of us. And Lord, we thank you for drawing us together into this beautiful, chaotic, sometimes messy, but beautiful community that testifies to who you are and for your plans and hope for the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the church is holy and beautiful because you are holy and beautiful and you are working in our midst. Lord Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit now to come amongst us. Would you make us aware of your presence? Would you speak to us now, Lord Jesus? We make ourselves available to what it is that you're trying to say to us this evening. 